and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode four. And uh, if this is your first time, your first introduction to Counterpunch Radio, just to give you a little bit of background, um, this is a podcast that we're now offering for free uh, through Counterpunch. It's it's part of what we're trying to do with Counterpunch, bringing as much information and analysis uh, and perspectives as we can that's really outside of the mainstream and what I would also call the pseudo-alternative media. Um, Counterpunch is, again, if you're not uh, so familiar with it or if you're just coming to it, um, Counterpunch is really one of the last bastions of you know uh, alternative analysis, alternative perspectives that really come from the left but that aren't beholden to what I would call the controlled left. And um, that, to me, I think is really important. That's part of the reason why I'm so happy to be bringing uh, this, this podcast, this radio show, whatever exactly we want to call it. And um, I've been getting some very good feedback, and that's obviously great. And I want to make sure that everybody understands that part of the mission of Counterpunch Radio is to really uh, remind people that there is also a print publication, Counterpunch Magazine, which is in many ways the, the, the heart and soul of what Counterpunch does. And if you're not already a subscriber to the magazine, I would highly recommend it. I mean, every issue you're going to get incisive analysis from very interesting perspectives from some of the best uh, analysts and commentators anywhere. Um, but at the same time, if you if you subscribe to the magazine, you're also going to be a contributor to the Counterpunch Project. And I think in many ways, that's equally important. And that's something that I always want to stress. And so I kind of try to put that out there here at the beginning of each episode so that people um, remember that what I'm doing here, what Counterpunch is doing, is really trying to broaden the reach of this project. And so with all of that being said, I'm very pleased to be able to have yet another contributor to Counterpunch Magazine with me today uh, in the most recent issue. I believe it should already be uh, on its way out, or if it isn't, it will be very, very soon. Um, we have an excellent, excellent article by, um, I think, one of one of the best commentators that we have um, talking about issues related to African-American culture, African-American politics, and a lot of these issues that in many ways I think are somewhat censored in the mainstream, even when they get some uh, attention. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Yvette Carnell onto Counterpunch Radio. Uh, Yvette is the founder of BreakingBrown.com. She's also the editor of YourBlackWorld.net. Um, she has an amazing article in the uh, in the current issue of Counterpunch Magazine. Um, so Yvette Carnell, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. Thank you. And um, so, like, I, you know, I have a lot of questions that I want to lead off with, but I want to kind of start out by giving uh, listeners a picture of what it is that you're trying to get across in your article. And your article in the uh, in the Counterpunch issue is entitled "The White Terrorists Lynching in America." And I, like I said, I have so many things that I want to lead off with, but I want to just keep it broad at the beginning. So. What made you write the article and the perspective that it provides? I mean, what is the overall, let's call it, if if we could, thesis of your article and, and what you want people to take away from it? Well, it, it was basically, a, in, in that sense, an amplification of what we had read. You remember when the EJ, EJI report came out, um, and it was very specific in terms of these lynching acts and acts of basically race hatred and intimidation and terrorism against black people. And I think a lot of times 
what happens when when these stories kind of flood the mainstream news you do a lot of little stories about them they're little blips on the radar screen but we don't do a real story about what happened you know what happened during this period of basically racial bloodshed and terrorism and how that thing still impacts us today how that how that history how that that sort of of legacy kind of reverberates even in the age of obama especially in the age of Obama, as we've seen with recent protests. So I think what I wanted to do was just kind of unpeel like another layer and say, hey, you know, this isn't just something that we're, we, we should be reading about in terms of historically, you know, uh, in, in terms of what happened then. And we're reading a history lesson. Th- this thing is alive here today. And that's what we're seeing in the streets today. Exactly. And I, I couldn't agree more with that. And um, just to give a little plug to Counterpunch Radio listeners, if this is your first time listening to the program, I would urge you to go back and listen to last week's episode where I had a conversation with Ajamu Baraka and we talked about some of those same issues. So connecting these two these two things, the historical as well as the current, I think is important. But I want to come back, Yvette, to your article if I could, because you begin in a very interesting way. And I was a little bit surprised that you that the way that the article starts out because you set up a very interesting contrast between uh, Giuliani, uh, Rudy Giuliani on the one hand, and talking about the way in which the, let's call it the white right, the white reactionaries of the Republican Party establishment, the way in which they, what you said was otherize Barack Obama, despite the fact that Obama's policies and and actions are quite very much in keeping with a lot of this sort of reactionary policies that that segment of the population should, in theory, be supporting. Well, I I think that's exactly right. And that's one of the things I, I I agree with you that it was interesting to start out that way, but I wanted to draw people's attention to something that I think is very important. In terms of whether you look at imperialism, whether you look at globalization, any of these things that you want to look at, and if you want to compare Barack Obama to George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, or who any of his predecessors, what you'll see is that he has more in common with them you know, than, than, he, than, than standing apart. Mm-hmm. So you see that. But even having said that, even with Obama doubling down, whether you look at drones, whether you look at whether you look at what he's trying to put through in terms of TPP and trade, no matter what you look at right now, Obama's doubling down on those things. He's not standing apart from that. And still, even having even with all of that said, Republicans and the the far right are still painting him as this guy who is outside as this as this as this sort of, you know, you know, non-authentic, you know, person who is pretending to be president, um, but he's not really one of us. So it just that just that just shows that just shows to me that even if you play this game, even if you play the imperialist game, even if you play that, even if you play the white supremacist game, even if you're even if you even if you don't take on systemic racism as a black person, you're still not included. And that to me, that to me, you can you can kind of pull that thread or follow that thread all the way back to the lynchings and to the way people kind of gathered around and drank soda pops while somebody's life was being taken in one of the most horrific ways imaginable. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, one thing that struck that struck me uh, in in reading the article and, you know, I as much as I as much as I try, I'm not masochistic enough to follow Giuliani and Republicans enough. But one of the things that struck me was this question of hating America, that Obama doesn't like America and 
thinking about that and it, the, the statement resonated with me that essentially that's their way of using the n-word without being able to use the n-word it's the derogatory slur that they know that they can't say so they create various equivalents to it whether you want to talk about the use of the word thug whether you want to talk about the use of violent whether you want to talk about gangbanger or whatever there are a lot of this coded language for racial slurs and in the political arena it seems to me that they use the 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 issue of hating america or not loving it enough that's always the thing and it's and it's, it's like a carrot and a stick where black people are concerned what they say is that you know it's a way to say you're not one of us yeah and what happens and what what i think many people in the african-american community are re- realizing now is that no matter what we do there is a constituency of people the legacy of of of, of bull connor and 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 everyone else and not just bull connor it's not just a southern thing you saw this in chicago you saw this in the northeast but the legacy of racism lives on in the sense that no matter what you do and no matter how you conform to to how we view the world um you will never be one of us and so this kind of putting out all the time that oh obama doesn't love america he's not one of us well what evidence do you have he's doing the he's doing the same things he's engaging in the same policies pushing through the same policies that just kind of disenfranchise poor people as a, a, a as as his predecessors well you know um he 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 didn't wear his lapel his flag lapel or whatever <laughs> anything and the thing is that these people you know racists tend to they just latch on to it whatever you give them the most minute thing they'll latch on to it because they too want to believe that like this guy, he can't be one of us. It isn't true. It isn't true that he's one of us. So he must, he must be a Muslim living in the white house. Mm-hmm. There has to be some way for us to undermine him because we can't wrap our heads around, you know, this, this black guy in this country being president of the United States of America. That's not something that we can deal with. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're, you're hitting at another interesting point that comes to mind and that in the myth that this is that this legacy is really sort of relegated to the South. I mean, we think about the Republican Party now is really having shrunk to a base that is centralized in the su- southern part of the country. But um, I, I recall uh, Dr. King talking about the kind of racism that he encountered marching through Chicago and through Illinois and through, you know, various other parts in the Midwest. West and in the North, and that sort of that legacy of racism is certainly not specific to the South. It's a very American. I would say it's quintessentially American. Oh, it is American. It is American, and it's a mistake to to kind of just pigeonhole it in the South. Yes, the you know the, the South was sort of sort of you know just just sort of saturated with it. That's certainly true. But you saw you saw you know. You saw gangs in Chicago when we talk about the lynchings. You saw gangs there basically running black people out of out of white neighborhoods, you know, and that's what kind of led to the loan sharking of black people because there was nowhere to stay. And even even the FHA had a part of that in terms of, you know, not backing, you know, the mortgages in black neighborhoods and things like that. But you it, it's not just a southern issue. It's not just a southern problem. And, and even if you look, look at what just happened in Ferguson, even if you look at what's happening now, even look at, you know, Eric Garner in the street in New York, mm-hmm. it's apparent to everyone who's paying attention that, hey, you know, this thing that we're this thing that we're dealing with, this racism isn't just a southern thing. And it has to do. And part of the reason I think people view it as a southern thing is because southern people in terms of southern racism, in terms of the nuance of racism, right? Southern races will call you an N word to your face. And they will they will drive up down the street with Confederate flags. They're very in your face with it. Whereas 
what I try to convey to people is that's not that's not that's just the very overt form of racism. Mm -hmm. But if you're if you hire two people, right, and you have a black man and you have a white man, and if the black man comes into work and he's late, and you assume that he's been out partying late, he's been irresponsible, that's why he's late. But if the white guy comes into work and he's late, you assume that he must have had a reason, he had a flat tire, something had to have happened. That's racism mm -hmm. because you're holding people to two different standards. And I think that's something that you see elsewhere outside of the South. It's not in your face. It's much more subtle, so it's much harder to pinpoint. But it doesn't mean that it's not there. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's also built into the institutions that we have throughout the country. I mean, my uh, in a in a previous life, let's call it, you know, I, I, I taught in what they euphemistically like to refer to as high needs urban high schools. And, um, you know, in, in Harlem and in East Brooklyn and in these places. And I encountered what I what I I guess I never fully understood until I had to deal with it on an everyday basis, the way in which a lot of these racist policies are institutionalized in the very fact of education, of law enforcement, of the judicial system, all of these forms of racism, which are not the sort of overt racism that you're talking about, but that, again, I would argue is fundamental to the very character of what America is. Oh, no, I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree that, you know, when you look at, like you said, the school that you that you were at, when you look at when you look at you know, when you look at every, when you look at separate but equal, when you look at the entire patchwork of what now is Americana, I think it's kind of hard unless you're unless you're being disingenuous with yourself. Is it's hard to say to yourself, you know, racism isn't a part of of who we are. Mm -hmm. Racism isn't a part of how we got started. Racism hasn't been something that's been used by government and by you know by by politicians to to promote a certain agenda and at times distract from an agenda. And so when you look at it that way, it's more of a tool, you know, and a tool that's wielded whenever needed, then it becomes apparent of why we're here and why and, and why it isn't going away anytime soon. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, racism is a tool. I think that's important. But I want to pull back a little bit and I want to get back to the the, the article in Counterpunch magazine. Again, it's entitled The White Terrorist Lynching in America. And there's a lot of history that you bring into uh, the article that I think is important to draw out. And one of the things that really struck me, and I have to admit, although I knew a lot of this history, having studied it at various times, um, there are certain aspects of it that even I was sort of unaware of it in terms of the magnitude of it, specifically the years 1918 and 1919 and this historical moment at the end of World War One, as uh, many, you know, black soldiers not just black soldiers of course but in this context we're talking about black soldiers coming back to the U.S. and the social significance of that so can you talk a little bit about this spike of lynchings 1918 to 1919 and why that's so important and what that tells us about American society at the time? Well, to give everybody a, 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 a basically a, a context, like you said, what you had was was you know black soldiers coming back home um, from fighting abroad for democracy, um, and when they arrived home, what they realized is that they didn't have the democracy and freedom that they told that they were fighting for, you know, overseas. So this created based this created um, what what they called a new Negro in terms of how they were reacting to what they were dealing with. And so you had this tension because you had, you had racists on the one hand who were like, nothing's changed. You better get back into your place and learn who you are because nothing's changed here. This, the, the totem pole, the hierarchy is still the same as it was before you left. And on the other side, you have, you have black guys who are like, listen, I'm not going to go overseas and, 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 and risk my life 
for somebody else's freedom and not have it for myself. So what you saw after that, you saw, you saw, you saw black communities actually um, begin fighting for themselves, uh, which actually more like not that they hadn't fought before, but you saw you saw an uptick in this, a noticeable uptick. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that exacerbated tensions even further. And so you also has you also had black people who were doing well, you know, who had you know, there was a story about four uh, uh, four brothers who were all business owners. One one was like a dentist. One was a uh, a, a business owner of a, like a little small dealership or something, and they were all they were all murdered. So you had like this amalgamation, like this perfect you know brew of of toxicity in terms of black the black men coming back from war who weren't going to take it anymore, and then some blacks were doing well, and then you also had the you also had a, a, you know black newspapers who were who were kind of digging into these stories and reporting these stories, and and what you had was 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 a was a white mob reaction that that unfortunately resulted in you know, a lot of black people getting lynched. Now, some some black communities fought back and, and fought them off. And some black communities fought back and, and were not able to make that happen for themselves. But it was really, really a very, very, um, you know, a, a very, very time that I, I think that, you know, more people should actually study that period because that was a very interesting period in American history. Oh, I totally agree. And I have to admit, there's an, I had a, a thought when I was reading your article and I, I reread it again. Um, and I'd never even I'd never even considered it until I until I sort of examined the context that you were providing and that is that at that moment 1918 1919 you have you have the potential of global revolution Europe is consumed by revolution the Russian empire has just been destroyed the communists have taken over you have an attempted revolution in Spain in many ways Europe is on fire with the spirit of revolution and then you have these black soldiers coming back to the United States and the United States um was in in many ways consumed by a a fear that there could be some revolutionary potential in this country. So thinking about it in that way, to me, I almost am seeing this this spike in the lynchings and the violence as a form, a typically American, uniquely American form of counter revolutionary violence. Yeah, and I think I think that's what that isn't what the local mobs were afraid of, but I think that that, that was a fear of government as well because. Mm-hmm. You had, it, like you said, it was really, it was really a special moment, and you have to remember that this was also about, and people don't talk about it. Like I said before, it was about prosperity. Signs of black prosperity were attacked, and you see, and now you have this what we call the black respectability. This this idea that comes from the from the right all the time. If oh, if black people would just do better and just just stay on jobs and wouldn't have so many babies, this wouldn't happen. Well, during the whole lynching period, black prosperity was attacked whether it was a black business, any signs of black prosperity. You know, even when you go back to Black Wall Street, you know, in terms of how they were attacked, this happened during the lynching period of 1918, 1919 too. Black prosperity was attacked. So it wasn't just about, you know, what they tried to make us believe it was about, which is, well, you know, the wheels of justice aren't turning fast enough. No, there was a, there was a feeling that, hey, there are some black people in our community who, who are getting up on us. Look at, look at them, you know. And my father will recount a story, and he'll, he recounts a story all the time about, how he was standing, you know, near a group of, you know, years and years ago, my father's 75, and he was standing near a group of of of, you know, of, of white guys, of old white guys, racist white guys, and in Georgia, and 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 they said they saw a black man driving down the street with a with a refrigerator on the back of his truck, and they look at each other and say, you know, we got to do something about these niggas. They look, they got he got a refrigerator, you know. So there's always this idea like I should be I should be up here on the hierarchy, and I'm not comfortable. When 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 black people kind of infringe upon that, that is always kind of the racist go to point. 
Exactly. And actually, just in thinking about that anecdote, it reminds me also of the vehement hatred of blacks that you saw from Irish immigrants, especially in places like New York and the race riots that you saw here. And, you know, the 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 Irish were treated as, you know, sort of the lowest caste in European society. As soon as they come here, they immediately project a sort of hatred and violence onto blacks in America in many ways in order to justify and to legitimize that, hey, we're not quite at the bottom anymore. Yeah, to legitimize would not cry at the bottom anymore and to fit in because you're coming here. You know, there's going to be discrimination against you. So the first thing that you want to do is assimilate. Well, you know, how do you assimilate? Well, I'm going to show you that just like you hate this group over here, I do, too. You know, I want and and, and they're below us. We're here. They're there. So I'm going to put myself immediately in your category and we're going to I'm just going to express hatred towards these black people. So I, I think I think you're exactly right. People forget how how many immigrant groups came over here and sort of and sort of kind of, you know, thumb their nose at black people. And even today, it's not just it's not just white immigrants who do that. Even today, you have immigrants, you know, from certain African nations. You have immigrants sometimes from the Caribbean who kind of believe what they're told about African-Americans and just kind of look down at African-Americans, even though these black immigrants who come from other countries have what they have because of what African-Americans have fought for in this country. Yeah, exactly. And um, before we head into break, I want to bring up one other point that I think is interesting. And I, I don't know how many people ever really discuss it in this way. And that is the question of this sort of intersection or whatever you want to call it between uh, black in America as black as a race and black as a class, because I think that this is an important question. And oftentimes people don't really think consider the word class and actually i think it's it's totally underrepresented in discourse today in general but um just as you were talking about these attacks on upwardly black uh, upwardly mobile black people in america uh essentially trying to say you know what no matter what you do you can't really change the class in society because your class has a particular place regardless of your wealth I think that's exactly right. And I think I think that's something that is is I think that's something that is consistently consistently has been consistently reinforced throughout history. When you look at it, people just look, people just have this lens that they look through and they see this racial strife as if the only thing that caused this was, you know, white people looking at people, white races looking at people with brown skin and saying, I hate this person. No, a lot of these people, a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the targets were, were, were places of black prosperity. Even when you look at the, the, the black, you know, the, the black farmers alliance, what they were asking for was, listen, we want we want we want better. We want better, you know, better numbers in terms of the exchange, in terms of the cotton we pick. You know, that's what we want. We're, this is this is a conversation about money. And so when it became about money, you know, the, the guy who was leading that union he went missing and he's, you know, of course, assumed dead. So, so much of this is about wealth, is about money and is about maintaining a hierarchy, is about maintaining, you know, a way of life for, 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 um, for, 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 for a white majority in this country, you know, and for, especially for white races in the South. But like we said before, it wasn't just the South. So, you know, economics has to come into it. Yeah, exactly. So let's take a break. And on the other side of the break, I want to I want to pick up this discussion. Um, a lot more points I want to talk about from your article. And I want to expand our discussion into bringing it to a lot of the headlines that we're seeing today, because I don't think that any discussion of lynching is really complete without applying it to what we're actually seeing and recognizing the connection between these two. So in any case, on the other side of the break and con continue my conversation with Yvette Carnell, you're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Yvette Carnell again. Uh, we're talking about her article in the most recent issue of Counterpunch, The White Terrorists Lynching in America. And um, I, I would, again, uh, you know, remind you to check out her website, breakingbrown.com, an excellent resource, lots of good commentary and analysis there. Um, so, Yvette, I want to get back into um, a lot of these issues, and I want to talk a little bit about this question of pathologizing blacks in America and pathologizing the question of what it means to be black. You know, this issue of, you know, well, crime is natural. It's the natural state of black people in America to be criminals, to be at the bottom, to be poor. This notion of black is almost like a disease. Um, and in, in many ways, it's sort of ingrained even in a lot of the, let's call them the, the, the black bourgeoisie who want to, quote unquote, overcome that disease. So can you talk a little bit about the way in which it's pathologized and uh, the difference between pre and post uh, Jim Crow and how that relates to that issue? Well, sadly, it's not just the bourgeoisie who, who sort of pathologize. Um, who sort of pathologize, uh, you know, uh, a blackness in that way. Um, you, you, you know, that w- there was a poll, and I'm, I'm trying to remember where I read it. It may have been, it may have been Dr. Adolph Reed, or it may have been um, in Frederick Harris's book, Price of the Ticket. Uh, but there was, there was basically a poll of some sort that said, you know, what are the problems? Why, why, why do, why do black Americans have these problems? And you know, regrettably, it came back that a lot of black people, regular, regular, ordinary black people believe that we are the source of our own problems. And I think a lot of that in terms of why we believe that comes from uh, not understanding or misunderstanding or an ignorance of actual history in terms of what was done. Mm-hmm. You know, we know about if you go if you go through America's high schools, you know about the civil rights movement and you know about the, the, the fight for the right to vote. And, and, and those impediments, you know, you don't know how black people were cut out of the New Deal for years, you know, while 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 white Americans, even immigrants who had, you know, not only been in this country that long, you know, had access to the New Deal. So you don't think about how you don't think about redlining, you know, in terms of how in terms of how ghettos were created. So when you think about it that way, what happens is that when, when those things are kind of left out of the conversation, when you don't understand how policy you know, disenfranchise black people consistently, then I think, I think, I think your mind kind of drifts to, well, if, if I don't see anything else that caused the problem, I must be the problem. The problem must be me. And the black misleadership class, the black bourgeoisie has sort of benefited and trafficked on this in the sense that they have basically said time and time again, in terms of their dealings with power that, you know, if, as long as we get a piece of this pie, it's okay. So the black misleadership class, the black bourgeoisie, they don't necessarily have a problem with racism or white supremacy. They don't have a problem with capitalism. What they want is that they, that, that they get their piece of the pie. Yeah. As long as they get their piece of it, they're good. They don't want any kind of liberation for black people. They just don't want, they just don't want that to impact them or their, or their family. Yeah, and actually, in effect, I mean, liberation for black people would mean the end of their position uh, in the social hierarchy. 
Yeah, it's power brokers. They can't. How can you be a power broker anymore if 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 that's not if we have a non hierarchical kind of you know relationship? You know, in terms of in terms of if we're equal or whatever. If we have a new understanding and, and the power structure changes, then you lose your. You're no longer at the top of the totem pole. You're no longer negotiating on our behalf. You know, and getting something for yourself, and the rest and everybody else gets nothing. So that's not something that you're inclined to give up. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, I was thinking about, and I don't want to get into too much of a Marxist analysis here, although we could probably do a whole show just on that. But, um, you know, this question of labor, you know, and in the time of slavery, before the Civil War, you have this notion of, of blacks as sort of beast, you know, beasts of burden, that they're, that they're beasts of burden from which labor and value and wealth can be extracted. And then once you get past that historical moment and you move into slightly more more modern and contemporary history, you don't have quite the same extraction of labor and extraction of wealth, but you still have this bestializing, if that's a word, of of blacks in America, that they are somehow, not only that they're subhuman, but they're that they're bestial in a sort of a primordial way. And I think that that is at its root in, in many ways sort of the essence of how a lot of people of white America see blacks as sort of not only just an other, but a beast. Yeah, because you you need that justification, right? Because if you believe that these people are just like you, then there's no way for you to justify um, treating them that way. There's no way for you to justify enslaving them. There's no way to to justify making them second class citizens and sticking dogs on them or 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 hitting them with water hoses or 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 killing them and lynching them and hanging them, you know, hanging them from from trees while you laugh and jeer. So you have to convince yourself that these 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 Instead of, you know, these aren't intelligent creatures. These are creatures of burden, beasts of burden who can't take care of themselves, who really can't think for themselves. So really we're doing them a favor. And the only way that they learn, and this was part of the lynching argument, is that the only way that they learn is, is, by, is by this kind of cruelty. They don't learn like you and I learn, you know, from, from, you know, from, from good discipline and, or from, from, you know, from, from going to jail for a little while. That, that's not how they learn. You have to be, these are beasts and you have to treat them like beasts. So I think that that was that was key in justifying how blacks were treated, you know, during the, during our time here in America. And I think I think, you know, to a large extent, it has worked because even, you know, you still have even today, you still have these sorts of justifications. We just came we just came out of a week where we remember the professor at Duke. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it who said that, you know, oh, black people, the, the reason they're failing is because they're, they have funny names and, you know, they try to put themselves outside of America. And it's, and it's interesting to me because I know people who have names that aren't typical, but these people work regular jobs and, you know, a lot of them have, have really achieved for themselves. So this idea that people are going to put themselves outside of themselves by having these sort of cultural names. And this idea of the, the, the whole thing of a professor comparing Asian Americans with African Americans, when we have two totally different, immigrated here very differently, have two totally different histories in this country. You know, so the idea that a, a guy who, you know, calls himself a professor who's supposed to be led by research, you know, and outcomes is, is saying this sort of thing kind of lets you know that this is still sort of the rationalization for why blacks are failing and why, you know, why the America and Amer- a lot of people in America don't feel like they are responsible to do anything about it or have any responsibility for it. Yeah, that's that's right. And, you know, also this this notion and you kind of talk about it a bit in the article that that not just uh, white people, but lynching specifically are a way of forcing 
uh, the bestial black man to not act on his primal instincts that they're that they're primal that they can't control themselves their lust for white women and what what have you that these instincts they can't control them they don't have that sort of agency so it's up to white America the defenders of white America to stop them from doing that yeah that the, the, they the, they have no impulse control. Yeah. So, you know, and, 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 that, and, that the, and part of the reason that they have no impulse control, that slavery was good, that the slavery was good. And while they were enslaved, you know, they were kind of kept under heel. And so really the lynch in, in lynching black people, they're actually blaming the people who freed the slaves and saying, listen, if you hadn't done this, these people would be under control. But now that, you know, now they're out these, these, you have these wild things just kind of out there by themselves and no, and nobody's going to control them. So unless we take over and unless we do what we have to do and lynch these people, you know, it's going to be a free for all. There'll be a tax, you know, on white women coming from every corner. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, I think it would take a it would take a blind man not to see how that is directly relevant to the way in which police treat black people today in general. Because uh, if you I mean, my God, you should see my Facebook feed. I'm sure yours is similar if you're on Facebook. Like yeah. it's just inundated video after video after video of these of, of cops and the way in which they just even just their general interactions with black people in all situations. I mean, it's not just an other it's not just a fear and a rational fear it's i mean it's lynching what what else can you call it well it is it is an irrational fear right remember remember and i'm not i'm not going to get into the details of the whole michael brown case but it was very interesting the way he was described and he wasn't the only one who was described this way as sort of this big massive what else was i going to do but shoot him there was i remember there was a case i think it was wisconsin where there was a black man with a mental issue Mm -hmm. who was laying on the bench and he was approached by a cop and the cop testified that, oh, my God, there was nothing else I could do. I, he, he, you know, I saw him and he was he 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 was so much bigger than me. And it turns out the guy was like five, six, five, seven, normal weight. And, you know, he, he wasn't behaving aggressively, but he was mentally challenged. But they said he had never been, you know, physically aggressive or combative. But how can you say that this guy who is, you know, five, seven, you know, you know, and of, of average weight was somehow. He was going to kill you if you hadn't pulled your gun and you shot him multiple times. So there's still this image that, you know, black black men especially have this superhuman strength. Mm-hmm. And if you if you don't if you don't use if you don't use excessive force, you can be overtaken by this by this strength, by this imagined strength or this imagined bestiality, this this ferocious, this this fear, you know, this that 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 exists in black men, which is which is totally imagined. Yeah, exactly right. I want to shift gears a little bit because um, before we before we come to the end of our conversation, I got to touch on this point, and I was so I was so pleased to see the way in which you kind of talk about this in the article. The question of black armed resistance and black self defense, because to me this is something that is uh, so woefully uh, misunderstood, or com- actually it's not even so much misunderstood; it's erased from the historical narrative to a large extent. Um, this question of armed self-defense and why well not only the fact that it's erased from the historical narrative but the reason why it's erased from the narrative and why that uh that the the control of the discourse primarily by you know white the white power structure why they can put up a false 
falsified image of Martin Luther King as some pacifist and completely erases radicalism and simultaneously totally eradicate the black radical tradition, the Black Panthers, Malcolm X, and a lot of these other issues. So black armed resistance against lynchings in general and the framing of the narrative and what you have to say about that. Well, you know, the, the, and it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, when you look at the history of, 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 of black and brown people in this country, you look at the history of lynchings and you look at the fact that black people did take up arms uh, in, in that year, in that year, 1918, 1919, that's, that's, that's what, that's what you had in this country. Mm-hmm. You had black people who were decided that we're not, we're going to buy guns. There was a guy who, there was a, there was a guy who, uh, during that period, a, a white, a white man who actually owned a, a, a gun shop and he called the police and he, you know, he basically said, you know, they're, they've called me and I've had, I had a black guy call me and said he had, you know, a few thousand dollars and he wanted to buy all the guns I had, you know, so, so you saw black people taking up self-defense. You saw black people saying, you know what, if you're going to shoot me, I'm going to shoot back. You saw black people actually build up. There was one, one lynching where they actually built up like barricades, like in a city and like, like hiding behind with guns and things because they had heard that a white mob was, was, was going to be headed that way. So that's, that's actually, that's actually more common than people think, but there's a reason why you don't hear about it. There's a reason why you don't hear about it now, and that has to do with the fact that there's a there's an effort, and I think it's an, a very intentional effort to make sure that black people in this day and age, you know, are pacifists, and that we look at King as our only, you know, as our only guide in terms of how we're supposed to interact with authority, because mm-hmm. that's what they tell us every time. Oh, oh, well, you know, if you would just be more like King, you know, and you you forget that King got his, you know, got his got his neck face blown off or whatever. So you know, and you forget that even King, when he went to certain places, he was there were there were there were armed people, there mm-hmm. were armed black people, you know, who kind of you know said if, if stuff really pops off, we're going to get involved. But those people aren't mentioned at all in the history because nobody nobody wants to point to a sort of a sort of a sort of as a sort of what violence was to black people and violence was the only remedy you had you had black newspaper owners who said listen you know who i remember i can't remember the i can't remember the writer's name but he he wrote he wrote like a um he wrote an editorial where he said you know this is the only way this is the only way for us to have dignity is to know that if 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 a, if a racist comes out and and kills one of us, then we kill one of theirs. But that's not something that you that you would want black people today to start to start thinking about, especially with guns guns like candy everywhere. So and even if even I'm not even talking about violence in terms of you know in terms of overthrow or anything like that. The problem is nobody everybody wants black people just to march. That's all they want to do. You know, get a permit, go march, and think things are going to be better. Nobody wants you to try to take a page out of someone else's book. And so there's been this there's been this concerted effort to ensure that black people remain pacifists mm-hmm. that at all costs, no matter what happens, that we remain pacifists. Don't even not even property damage. You know, property damage. When 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 that happened in Baltimore, what did they say? Oh, you know, Kings, you, you look at what you've done. You've destroyed you, you, you you've destroyed, you know, King's dream, mm-hmm. you know, by tearing down a building. Even though King, you know, said the riot rise with the language of the unheard. So I think that's very intentional. Yeah, exactly right. And it, it not only just is it a sort of a, you know, pardon the pun, but a whitewashing of history, but it's also to uh 
to take away this this militant element that was even a fundamental part of King because, you know, King went through his own transformation and he started to realize that he could no longer just talk about civil rights, of course, the famous speech at Riverside Church and talking uh, speaking out about the Vietnam War and talking about issues of imperialism and getting at these structural questions, structural issues that were fundamental to all of the obstacles that faced uh, black America. And that is also completely uh, removed from the narrative, I think, quite deliberately, because it's it's quite frankly dangerous for black people to start thinking about those things and to start making those connections. And that's why the Black Panthers, for example, are removed from the narrative. That's why you don't hear about them in, in, in contemporary history books and so forth. Oh, of course. The only thing you hear about every year is the same people. You hear about Martin Luther King and who who the the peanut, and you hear you hear about that over and over. And even though even what we hear of King is a whitewashed, like you said, a whitewashed version of King. So we're being sort of fed what 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 people you know what the power structure wants us to believe that as long as we are sort of a, a sort of a sort of passive and have sort of sort of react to. Um, sort of react to oppression in sort of in a passive way that that eventually things are going to be okay and that this is our only route and the problem with that is the 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 person that you're fighting with the entity or the government or the you know the the unfairness that you're up against the bias that you're up against you can't let that thing dictate your reaction or you've already lost you know they're not they're the reaction of our government or policymakers or whoever else isn't dictated by what we do. They've let us know a long time ago that 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 you know you can you there have been so many things recently. I remember when Obama tried to go into Syria, there was a poll taken and 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 you know eventually most Americans were opposed to it, even though somehow black people decided that all of a sudden they were hawks because Obama was in office and they were yeah. they were overwhelmingly in favor of it. Exactly. But when you looked at when you looked at that, it was just kind of amazing to me that Americans said, you know, we don't want any boots on the ground. And now you're hearing stories of, oh, you know, American boots in Syria and what's going on in Syria. It's like it doesn't matter anymore. They're going to do what they're going to do. But when it comes time for us to say, hey, you know, as, as poor people, as black people, we're not going to take this anymore. They say, well, the only thing you can do is, is submissively march or or you're just denigrating Martin Luther King Jr.'s memory. Yeah. And, you know, they they also want to sort of make you make you forget about all of the reasons why these things exist. So in other words, it's like, you know, you see them on Fox News or whatever saying, look at them destroying their own neighborhoods, destroying their own neighborhoods, forgetting the fact that those neighborhoods don't really belong to them, even though they may pay rent to some white landlords or maybe they, you know, uh, they they don't own the businesses. They don't have the jobs there. The factories, to to whatever extent they, they existed at one time have pretty much all gone. So really you have an evisceration of the black working class, but as soon as black people start to rise up and to, and to express themselves with both peace and with violence, all of a sudden they're right back into the bestial mode. Yeah, you're gonna, all, all of a sudden you're going to be caricatured. And that's what black people can escape. They can never escape the caricature. And it is impossible to escape the caricature. And I think that's, that's one of the lessons that has to be learned is that no matter what happens, if they find one person stealing a shoe, you know, or stealing a bag of chips, that image will be blown up for all of America and used as 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 the quintessential, you know, the 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 kind of the kind of drilling down in terms of who we really are. So you you can't escape that. And I think I think too many too many black people try to run away from that and try to base their lives and on being viewed in a certain way. Um 
uh, uh, by the mainstream white community. And the thing is, you can't worry about that because they're going to do that anyway. And and you being good and pulling your pants up and all these sorts of things won't change that reaction, no matter what. So I think I think I think one of the things that has to happen, and one of the things I, I try to draw out is that it's it's impossible to continue, or it should be impossible. This this idea that we're going to get somewhere by being like this reactionary community, in terms of how we're viewed in the minds of people, you know, that the, as as media exists, that's going to be there. They're going to do that. Fox News shows you every day. They're going to take any. They're going. They will blow up. Uh, remember a few years back, they took it was I think it was one Black Panther outside of a outside of a voting booth, and they blew that up and and played that for for months. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to escape that, but that that should not impact, you know, your way forward. Exactly right. And um, well, I think that uh, we're, we're, we're pretty much out of time here. But I first of all, I want to thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. I want to remind listeners again, the most the most current issue of Counterpunch, you got to read this article. I mean, it's really it, it's excellent. I it wasn't just that I was preparing to have this discussion. I mean, I really did feel the need to read it twice. And so uh, again, that article is the white terrorists lynching in America by Yvette Carnell. Um, Yvette, again, you are the founder of Breaking Brown com and the editor of yourblackworld.net. Um, is there anything else that you want to tell the listeners before we go? Uh, no, no, Eric. I appreciate you, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, again, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Yvette, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you. Thank you.